Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read, starting in uh, verse 5, and just remember way back to the beginning of uh, probably six sermons ago or so, and uh, remember the promise that was given to uh, Zechariah as we look at this text and see the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, so Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 5, and then our main text will be verses 57 through 66. Luke writes, In the day of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which is fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among people. And then you can uh, skip ahead to verse 57 as we see the fulfillment of these things. Uh, 
Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. So let's just take a moment to think about this. The time comes for Elizabeth, this woman that's well past childbearing age, to give birth. In those days, even more than today, if you were barren, it was a great reproach uh, among the people. It would be the worst thing for a woman to not be able to have children. All of her friends, all of her family, all those who loved Elizabeth would have shared in her pain. And the culmination of this miraculous conception, this miraculous birth has come. And so it's no wonder that they all show up and rejoice with her as this amazing thing has happened and she gives birth. Now, we don't know, uh, it can't be proven from Jewish custom that uh, you would name the child after your father, but obviously at this point in time in Israel, and for whatever reason, maybe it was because Zechariah had never had a son, he was in his old age, maybe everyone thought, Obviously, they're going to name him Zechariah. Obviously, this will be his name. And surprisingly, she says his name will be John. And this upsets uh, those who are with her. Those that are there to rejoice with her are upset. There's no one in your family named John. You have this miraculous uh, conception it's a miracle that you're giving birth in your old age. And are you really going to name the child John? No one in your family's named that. Why wouldn't you name him Zachariah? Honor your husband. I mean, look at the poor guy. He hasn't been able to speak and he can't hear ever since he came out of the temple. They believed that this would happen. So it's interesting. They turn. They don't like her response. So they turn to him and they're making signs to him because he can't hear. The, the Greek word that uh, to uh, not be able to speak can both mean uh, deaf and dumb, not being, being able to speak and not being able to hear. And the fact that they had to make signs to him uh, seems to point this out. And it's interesting. He grabs a tablet, which probably would have been wood coated in wax, where you, you would scratch into it. And he says this, his name is John. She said his name would be John. He says his name is John. 
in this moment, they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? And here's the key phrase to the whole thing. For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let's pray and ask God to show us uh, in this text uh, what he has for us. Father, I thank you for this accurate account of salvation history. God, I pray that you would reveal to us what you have for us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This text is about the hand of the Lord. If you ask someone, if you gave them five minutes to think about this, what is this text about? Some people might say, this text is about Elizabeth. Others might say, no, this text is about Zechariah. Others might say, this text is about John the Baptist. And yet, this little phrase that we might glance over in verse 56, for the hand of the Lord was with him, is the point of the text. It's always this way with Scripture. Scripture is called the testimony of the Lord. Whenever we look to God's Word, first and foremost, the number one thing we're looking for is God. What is God like? What's His attributes? What's His character? What is God doing? You see, when we come to the Bible as like a manual for life, like what does the Bible say about anger? What does the Bible say? We're always looking at the second principles or the third principles in the text. The Scripture is about God first and foremost, and, and it's no different here. Now, understand this coming off Thanksgiving weekend. Your Thanksgiving that would come out of your heart, your joy and your worship is directly affected by perceiving God by faith according to His Word in all things. Let me say that again. Your thanksgiving, your joy, and your worship is directly affected by this. Perceiving God by faith according to His Word in all things. I know I say this often, but it's such a good illustration of it. When I watch the news, even if it's 10 minutes a day, there will not be a moment in my day where I feel more frustrated, more sad, more scared, and more angry than after watching the news. Now, someone might say, uh, critique that and say, well, what do you want to do? You want to put your head in the sand and not know what's going on? Don't you want to look at reality and see what's really happening in the world? The problem is this. What the news is in the United States of America is sometimes 
the things that are actually happening minus God. So let's just throw them a bone. Let's just say they're reporting accurate news. And we're looking at things that really happened. But God is not taken into account. And when God is not taken into account in our hearts by faith, according to what we know about the world, we will experience the opposite of thanksgiving. You'll be frustrated. You might even be angry with God. You'll lack joy. You'll be sad. You'll be angry at what isn't being done because God is not perceived in the moment. The thing we need to see in this text is that God is at work. God is doing something. We need to know what God is doing. Uh, The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, starting in verse 7, lets us in on why it's difficult sometimes to know that God is working. In Hebrews 2.7, here's what he writes. You made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. Everything is put in subjection under the feet of King Jesus. Now putting in... Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. I wonder if you believe that. Is there anything outside of the control of Christ right now? When you look at the world, do you perceive the world as everything in subjection to Christ? Here's what the Scripture says. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Right now, we can't understand all the ins and outs of how Jesus Christ is in control. It doesn't seem like Jesus Christ is in control of all things. But the writer of Hebrews says, you know this, that God became a man. He became just like you and I. He lived a perfect life. He died and he rose from the dead. And he claimed himself to be king, ruler of the world. And by faith, we need to believe that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everyone and everything is under his subjection, and everyone will claim that he is Lord one day. But that takes faith. It doesn't seem that way when we don't perceive God at work. So what I want to ask from you this morning is to know the God who is graciously working around you. He was working then, and He's working now. I want you to know that God is graciously working right now. 
in every believer's life and every non-believer's life. Every non-believer deserves hell. They don't deserve another second. And yet, there's a time of repentance. There's a time of grace extended. God is working. God has worked in Christ. And God will bring to completion uh, this great salvation. So five things I want you to know about God's work. First, know that God's work is fulfilling His promises. I'm going to show you this in four ways. Elizabeth gives birth to a son in her old age just as the angel had told her she would. God sent Gabriel to speak God's words. God told Zechariah, Elizabeth is going to give birth in her old age and... God kept His promise. You cannot survive as a Christian unless you believe that God keeps His Word. Unless you believe that all of His promises are going to be kept. The angel even promised that at the birth, the people were going to rejoice with her. And sure enough, the people are there right in our text and rejoice with Elizabeth. We also see in this text that Zachariah's judgment was going to end, that his mouth was going to be open and he was going to speak. It's interesting. Zachariah's name means God remembers his promise. Even the names of all the actors, all those that are in this account, and we're going to look at more of them later, speak of what God is doing. But God keeps His promises. Imagine being Zechariah. He was told by Gabriel that in the day these things take place, your mouth will be loosed. We're told in this text that eight days after John was born, they took him to be circumcised, and that's where they named him, and that's when his mouth was loosed. Now, day can mean different things. It can mean a 24-hour day. It could mean back in the old day, you know, back in a different time frame. I got to guess those eight days were eight long days. As your son is born, you still can't hear, you still cannot speak. I wonder if Zechariah, even though God has kept this amazing promise to give him a son, if he wasn't even struggling with, is, my, is this condemnation or this judgment on me for not believing Gabriel the first time ever going to be lifted? But we see in this text that God's promise is fulfilled with Zechariah. The fourth thing we see here is that ancient prophecies are fulfilled. I mean, these are some of the most amazing things to look at. When you look at how many years earlier uh, Christ was prophesied, but even John the Baptist, it was prophesied that a forerunner would come, one who would proclaim good news to Israel. Finally, when the Messiah was to show up, there was going to be one who would come. In fact, in Matthew 3, 1, here's, here's what we're told. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So we're told from Matthew that John is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. Now, Isaiah 40 is too good. It's too great a text to not turn to. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at this text. If I can only pick a couple chapters to look at, if I had to choose a few chapters I could look at, and that's all I could look at my whole life, Isaiah 40 is going to be one of those chapters. If someone ever asks you, what is God like? I would say, take them to Isaiah 40. Uh, to cause a heart to sing and worship, I hardly know a better text. Here's what we read, and uh, we won't read all of it, but I just want to kind of help you feel the gist. Look at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So throughout this uh, prophecy, throughout Isaiah's prophecy to the people of Israel, there's all these promises of judgment, but be ready, there's hope at the end of all of it. And we're told here that uh, in verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. Now, does that make sense? There is no straight road in the desert. You're always going around obstacles, up and down uh, mountains and valleys. But the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord makes a level straight road, prepares the way for the Messiah. Now, if you're God's people, you're Israel, you know that your hope, you know that life's hard for you, and your hope is all bound up in this one who is to come, in the Messiah. And we're told here that iniquities are even going to be taken away. And then in verse 6, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But look at this. But the word of our God will stand forever. We waste away. God's word is always true. God's word will always stand. And so, verse 9, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, 
Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with his might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You get a picture. Your God is here. He has strong arms. He picks you up like a shepherd picks up a sheep. And he holds you right up to his bosom, right up to his chest, right here, holds you in and comforts you. This Lord, these arms, this is the image. And at this point, someone could say, whose arms? What is God like? Why is this good news? And in a moment, verse 12 changes tone. So the people of God are rescued. Their sins are taken away. They're held. They're carried right up to this great shepherd's chest. And here's what we find out. Verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's held all the waters of the earth, all the oceans right here in the palm of his hands? That's the one who's holding you, Israel. Who has measured and marked off the heavens with a span? One of the ways to measure in those days was to measure by a span. I do this when I go deer hunting. I shoot a buck. I want to know how long the tine is. I take my thumb to my pinky and I know it's eight inches. I want to know how long the tine is. This is a span. How many spans is something? Well, God, the one who holds you in his arms, measures the heavens, all the galaxies, all the universe. We know how big it is compared to they, what they did in their day. We have the Hubble telescope. The one who holds us measures all that by his span. Those are his hands. and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance. Who's measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands as fine dust. And he goes on and on and on. And he ends by saying this in verse 30, even youths shall grow faint and weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So what does it mean that John the Baptist is born? That the forerunner is here? I just challenge you this week, go to Isaiah 40. Imagine what it's like to be held by 
your God. Read verses 1 through 11 and then find out what your God's like. Find out His power. And this day, at this point in time in history, the forerunner has arrived. God fulfills His promises. All flesh is like grass, but His Word will never change. His Word comes true. That's one thing you can learn about God from this text. Secondly, know that God's work is gracious. Just think about it. Elizabeth gives birth in her old age. She's shown mercy. That's why the people were worshiping God, because they saw the mercy that was given to her. And the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah his name is John. That's what what they're to name him. What does that mean? What does John mean? John literally means God is gracious. Jehovah is gracious. First, we looked at Zechariah, which means God remembers His promise. Uh, Then we see Elizabeth as a player in this story, and her name means God is the absolute faithful one to His promises. And now John means God is gracious. God is keeping His promises. He is faithful to keep His promises. And God is gracious. The highlight of even the names of this text is about God's work. And then the angel also told Mary that her child was going to be named Jesus, which means God is Savior. Isn't it amazing? If you just had their four names, you have all you need to know about redemption right there. God has promised salvation. He keeps His promises. He's faithful. God does it in grace. And He's going to do it through a Savior, through a baby named Jesus. All this is screaming out, God is working on behalf of sinful people. A third way we see that God is gracious is we just see the judgment that's lifted from Zechariah. This is comforting to me because have you ever doubted? When Zechariah doubted an unbelievable promise, he instantly received judgment. But even there, God was gracious and to him in, uh, when these things took place. We're going to see in a moment that as Zechariah had faith and said his name is John, just like Gabriel said, he received mercy. And then we just know that God is gracious because John is the forerunner of the Christ. God's grace is put on display. Its pinnacle moment is when God became man, lived a perfect life, and then willingly went to the cross to take the sins of rebels, those who were rebelling against God, 
to take their sins, pay the punishment for them, and then to offer them His perfect life in exchange for their sin. Simply to be received by faith. God's grace is unbelievable. It's beyond what we can imagine. Thirdly, know that God's work is different from man's work. No one would have expected, especially Zechariah, that his wife was going to have a baby in her old age. This is not how you would think it would work. <laughs> and I love it. In the, in the text we read, Gabriel tells him, your prayer's been answered. And remember when we thought about this, when was the last time Zechariah quit praying for a baby? I don't know, maybe 20 years ago? And then Gabriel comes like, your prayer's answered. You forgot about it, but God never forgot about it. And God works in mysterious ways, ways we wouldn't. The fact that God wanted His name to be John, that was weird for everyone there. They were upset at it. Why would you do this? They all wondered, this is weird. That was their response to it. Um, the fact that he was deaf and dumb and that God would bring this, all this, all this miraculous work shows that God works differently than we could ever think. Now here's the thing. We struggle with faith if we can't see how all the dots connect. If we can't see how it's going to work out, then we're not going to believe it. Unless God grants us faith to believe that though I can't see all the dots connecting, God knows how these connect. God is Savior. God holds me in His arms. No one's given Him counsel. He's smarter than we are. God works miraculously. I just want to point out in verse 64, after he says his name is John, and they all wondered, it says, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed. This is a miracle. How does God make someone not know how to talk in a moment and not be able to hear, and then all of a sudden it, turn, it, turn it back on again? Whenever you see Luke say immediately, this is his flashing red light saying, a miracle, a miracle's happening. You see the faith healers on TV who are promising healing, saying, you give me $100 and I'll send you this prayer cloth and I'll declare that you're healed, but you got to do this faith and you'll slowly get better. Or Benny Hinn or someone gets up there, someone who's crippled, and he says he heals them, and then they stumble off the stage, and they pretend like this healing's going to keep going. Here's what you need to know. A real miracle, one done by God in Luke, is always talked about in this sense. Immediately, everything was fixed. No rehab. No learning to talk again. No slowly getting going. God doesn't work how we work. 
Our miracle workers are shammy. But you don't see that in Luke. Let me just rattle off some of these and give you an example. Luke 4.39. And he stood over her. This is Simeon, or Simon's mother-in-law who's sick. He stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Luke 5.13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then Luke 5.25, and immediately the paralytic rose up before them, picked up uh, what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. Luke 8.44, the bleeding woman, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Luke 8.47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, declaring in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Luke 13.13, the woman who for 18 years has had a disabling spirit that has caused her to walk hunched over, He laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Are you noticing another theme? What happens right after all these miracles? They're glorifying God. Luke 18.43, Immediately the blind man recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Luke 22.60, Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed to show the miraculous nature of Jesus' prediction that Peter was going to uh, betray him. So the word immediately reminds us of God working a miracle. And I just can't help but think, at least the so-called miracle workers of our day seem to lack this aspect to their miracle working. Now, don't get me wrong. I think God can do miracles. I don't believe there's miracle workers. God can do whatever He wants. God can still do miracles today, but when He does, they're going to have the same traits as they've always had uh, when He's done them before. Um, and so we see that God works differently than man would work. The fourth thing we learn from this text, know that God's work will always bless, or that God's work will always bless faith. Look at verse 59. When they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father inquiring him what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. In the Greek, whenever something's in the emphatic, uh, what we might underline or highlight, the way you do that in the Greek language is you put that word smack dab at the beginning of a sentence. You don't have like subject uh, and predicate with a verb uh, action in the middle. 
in the Greek language, you can put whatever you want to emphasize first. That's what makes it so difficult and why I struggle maybe, because I had to learn a totally different concept. But here, John, in the Greek, it says, John is his name. It's emphatic. And it's in the present. He's saying, we don't name him John. He's already been named John. Gabriel has already said it. Even the way Elizabeth said that he would be named John, Zachariah's faith here comes on display and says, his name is John. And instantly, immediately, we see his uh, mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, not surprisingly, blessing God. And here's what God always does. If God blessed our own righteousness, ourselves being good enough, this is what the whole world thinks Christianity is or what religion is. Please God. The problem is, is nobody can. Everyone is by nature in their hearts rebellious. And they can't change their nature any more than I can become an animal and run like a deer. I can't do it. I can't change my nature. In that sense, the only good news there is for humanity is that God doesn't save the good people, but rather saves those who recognize they can't save themselves and that God is the Savior. God blesses faith. You and I were created not to trust ourselves, not to trust, put our hope in things or in other people, but to put our hope in God. And this is good news. Because we can't produce the righteousness. But if God's been so pleased to work in your heart so that you can see that Jesus Christ is a Savior, and you can look to Him and say, I have no hope unless He takes away my sins, then you also can be blessed along with Zechariah because God always blesses faith and trust in Him. If you trust Him, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, you won't have fear, you'll have security. If you trust Him, even in the midst of things you can't understand, you won't have anger, or frustration that just rules your heart and breaks you, but you will wonder and look in amazement at how God, even in the midst of all this, is going to connect all the dots. How is God going to be Savior even in the midst of these circumstances? Know that God's work will always bless faith. God never promised to change your circumstances in the here and now. But God did promise to those who are humble and don't try to get themselves through circumstances, but recognize they have no hope, those who are humbly looking to Him, He will in a way that surpasses all understanding bring peace in the midst of total chaos. 
It's a gift. And the way you receive Jesus' forgiveness is by faith. That's how God works. God blesses faith. And lastly, uh, number five, know that God's work perceived by faith leads to joyous worship. As Zechariah looks in faith upon what Gabriel says, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is blessing and worship. Do you realize you and I would be thankful and joyous all the time if we perceived reality? If we actually saw what God has done for us and how God is present and how He always keeps His promises and how every good thing we have is grace, we never earned any of it, that we can't make God a debtor. If we believe that by faith, thanksgiving would never cease to flow from our hearts. Here's what scared me thinking about this. As I was pondering this, I thought, you know what? Of course, Zechariah worshiped. Of course he did. Look at what God did for him. He gave him a son. He gave him, you want to know the scary thing? You know what I might have done? I might have said, it's about time. He said on the day this was going to happen, it was eight days later. It's about time I'm done suffering. That's the scary thing. I don't think it's automatic. I think you see the grace of God on his life that he's worshiping God. It seems clear to us that he ought to worship God. But in a scary way, my heart might have been tempted to even complain in the face of grace. But if you perceive God's grace, if you perceive God working, fulfilling all of His promises. He never goes to sleep. He doesn't grow weary. Even young, strong men grow weary. If you know that God's Word is true, it never ends, and God is the God of Isaiah 40, then you also can worship and with thanksgiving in your heart and give praise to God. This text puts on display God's fulfilling His promises, God being gracious to us, God blessing faith, and we can see how faith leads to worship. So my prayer is that your faith this morning strengthened, that you look to Christ as your Savior. That's the only hope for you. If you don't trust in Christ, there is no grace left for you. God had one plan to save people through Christ. He's a good Savior. He's never failed. He's never fallen asleep. He never promised it would be easy, but He did promise He'll never leave you or forsake you. And when Jesus was on that cross, His Father left Him and His Father forsake Him so that you could have the promise that no matter what happens, God is always with you. Let's pray. Father, Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for John the Baptist, this herald of good news that God's grace has reached its climax in the person of Christ. God, I pray that 
All these things would inform our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.